We are in Acts chapter 8. The message is entitled, It's Personal. I don't know about what your relationship is this morning with God. If you're born again, it's a personal relationship. That's something that many people, even in Christian religion, don't know about. Their relationship is with the rules of their particular denomination. It's with the gathering, the church, the edifice, the government, and they go do things. And what's very different when one of those people even comes to know Jesus Christ personally, it's personal. We have a personal high priest because we've realized that Jesus died for us personally. In Isaiah 53, when we have that great prophecy about how one day Israel will look back and they'll realize they missed their king and they will weep and they'll come to know Jesus Christ as their savior then. God promises that one day Israel will be saved and that's the prophecy, Isaiah 53. But it says that when Jesus will die because it's still looking forward even to his death back in Isaiah that it pleased the Father to crush the Son because he saw those that would be redeemed. You know who that is? All of the redeemed. What happens with those that are redeemed? Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Are you a follower of Christ this morning? If you are, you know how personal it is. It's personal. We read in that Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now the main point. He's, he's finishing up the thoughts that Sam went through last week. So good. So good. I listened on the way back from the airport. You had good teaching. I am confident you always have excellent teaching when I'm gone. Whether it's Sam or David Gray or Clayton, whoever is filling the pulpit, we have men that preach the word here. And Sam unwrapped that for me like I'd not considered it before. It was a blessing to my heart. But he says right here, now the main point of what has been said is this, we have such a high priest, like what? Like Melchizedek. A king and a priest. And what a high priest we have. Unlike Melchizedek, our, our priest was sinless. Our king is perfect, such a high priest. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne, the majesties in the heavens. Now that's different, isn't it? Once again, there's a look back to what we've ever already learned in Hebrews, that his work of salvation was completed. Well, the work of salvation for the priests in the old covenant was never finished. They were always offering at least a once a year sin for all the nation. And when you sinned, there was a prescription for every sin. You had to bring a sin offering. And what was happening? You were always reminded that you were a sinner by the law. You were always reminded you were not going to make it by the law. The law taught, the soul that sins shall die. And there always had to be a blood covering, even though the Bible's going to tell us in the next couple of chapters it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. It was just a temporary covering until Jesus came and John saw him 
in John chapter 1, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. His once for all offering, there's nothing left to do but receive it. Even after you receive it, you don't earn it. It's once for all, it's done. You belong to God. Do we sin? Yes, we still sin. Do we stray? The old gospel song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, here's my heart. Take and seal it. That's what Paul struggled with in Romans chapter 7. Those things that I shouldn't be doing, I find myself doing. Those things I know I should be accomplishing, I don't get them done. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the bondage of this flesh? But he goes on to the next chapter, chapter 8, and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. How can those two things be true? Because we belong to him. And because we belong to him personally, he has given us his personal Holy Spirit who convicts us when we sin, and we already have a sacrifice for that sin. Think with me for a moment. When you received Christ, when had Jesus died? 2,000 years ago, right? When Jesus died on the cross for all your sin, was your sin past, present, or future? It was all future. How much of your sin did he die for? Just up to the point you received him? No, no. He purchased and paid for all your sin that you will ever commit, and yet you're still in the flesh. What a wonderful Savior. So we see that while he's seated in his ministry of paying for our salvation, he stands, doesn't he? In Acts Chapter 7, verse 52, 55. Stephen is being stoned for his preaching, for his apologetic for the gospel. And it says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a thought is that? That Jesus stands to welcome his faithful children home. Jesus stands to minister. He stands as our attorney, doesn't he? First John chapter 2. John writes, little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. What did he write? First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, well, so then do we just continue in sin? The grace be about God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live in it? Do we still stumble? Do we still sin? Yes, we do. But it's not a lifestyle anymore. Because it's personal, because the Holy Spirit lives within, you can't stand it now. As an unbeliever, you covered it up, you justified it, you compromised. As a believer, you can't do that and be walking in joy so what do you do? You confess it. But then he says, so I write these things to you that you sin not, but if you sin, you have an advocate. You have an attorney who stands and pleads your case before the Father. John MacArthur writes this, Jesus has already ministered the one final blood sacrifice that is sufficient for all people for all time. This work 
of his is completely finished. There's no need for any other sacrifices. But Christians can't do anything. We can't praise God, thank him, commit, or dedicate ourselves in worship, obedience, and service to him apart from Jesus Christ. Why? He's our high priest. Now think with me. In the Old Testament, there wasn't just the sin offerings, were there? There was also offerings of thanksgiving and offerings of praise. But just because a fellow was one to praise the Lord with a great harvest didn't mean he could bring the offering himself. He had to go through his high priest. It was his way. And sometimes we, we get this idea when we start studying doctrine and we start thinking we got God figured out. That's a problem. He's God. And we're not. You don't have God figured out. As much as you may study the intricacies of theology, when you get to heaven, you're going to go, oh, no matter how deep you've gone, no matter what degree you've gotten, you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I get that. <laughs> now, I don't think we'll ever understand all of God. We can't because we'll never be God. We'll never be God. But sometimes we get this idea, we got him figured out, so God is static. He's a doctrine. It's written in stone, kind of like the Ten Commandments. And so it's all just settled, just do it. Listen, our high priest is alive and he's active. Saving us. Yes, salvation is complete, but he's keeping us saved. Do you know that? He's keeping you saved. He'll not suffer you to be tempted above your ability, but in every trial he'll make a way through the trial that you may be able to bear. Without him, you would lose your salvation. See, a lot of people like to think, oh yeah, once saved, always saved. Uh, by the way, that's not in the Bible. Pastor, don't you believe in eternal security? Absolutely. But once saved, always saved is not there. That's something we've put in there to make sure that our kids, they don't serve the Lord, are going astray from the Lord, don't love Jesus anymore, say, well, they're on the prodigal. No, 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 no. The Bible says if you love Christ, you follow him. Your desire is to please him. Do I know when somebody's saved or not saved? No. Sometimes it's hard to tell, isn't it? God knows that's his business. But when we're preaching the word, the Holy Spirit is able to take the sword of the Spirit and point out and say, hey, bud, you're in trouble. You've been playing games. You said a prayer when you were eight, and you've been living for yourself ever since. You even got baptized when you were 12. You're still lost. The Holy Spirit can do that. I can't. Because it's a personal ministry. He ministers personal. We say, where do you get that from? Well, in John 18, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, do you remember that? And so 600 people, Roman soldiers, show up with a priest and those other derelicts. And so Jesus said this, who are you here to arrest? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, they repeat their orders. And 600 of them, he says, I am, his name, the name of God. 600 of them fall back to the ground. And I don't know what they figured, but they knew something had happened. 600 of you get knocked down. You think, huh, what happened? Not them. It shows the hardness of the lost heart of a man. They got themselves up again. They dusted themselves off. He's still standing there. And he asked them the same question again. You know, somebody would have said, huh. Remember the fellows that went out to get uh, Elisha? And he said, King says, come down, a man of God. So I'm a man of God. Fire come down from heaven and consume you. Gone. Sends out the next captain. 
He says the same thing. How hard-hearted, you know, Doug Bookman says, sin makes us stupid. It's true. Same thing. About the third guy that showed up, he says, oh, man of God, please, please come down and don't burn us up. And God tells the prophet, yep, you can go down now. He's all right, I'll come down. And Jesus standing there asking them the same question. So, who are you here to rest? They say the same thing. This time he doesn't knock them down. And it says there in John 18, these words he said to protect those so that it might be fulfilled all the Father gave him. He didn't lose one. His protection of your soul as his child is an active ministry of the great high priest. And every time we gather to worship, and that's why we anticipate it so much, it's our high priest that offers it to the Father. Wow. I'll tell you, as you unpack this, this book of Hebrews, there is so much richness here. Doctrine is not something for the head alone. Paul even dealt with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There was some puffed up Christians, and he says this. We know now when it comes to doctrine, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. Love builds up. This is food for our heart that we might be strengthened and know that we have a high priest that prays for us personally, that loves us personally, that calls us to ministry personally. I don't know about you, but when I hear about a tragedy and watch it closely, all those terrible things that happened in France, what's your heart? Oh, Lord, what's my part? Pray. Pray for those that are there. Pray for those that are ministering. Pray that somebody would get the gospel to them. Pray that God would give them comfort because we're not alone. It's personal. We feel it personally, don't we? And the, the fact that we have this merciful and faithful and powerful king priest. We're not alone. We're not on our own. He goes on. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesties on heaven and high. He's not just seated in the temple. He's seated at the right hand, the place of honor of the father. He's a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. What's he saying? These Jews that are called back and they just, they can't let go of their traditions. He's saying it's not even the real thing. He's going to say it's just a shadow. The real thing is in heaven. And none of those priests can minister there. None of those priests. You have to have a personal relationship with the one and only, the only begotten of the Father, Jesus Christ, in order to have a relationship with the Father. He's there in the real temple. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice, so it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. We already talked about that. He's offering our worship, our praise, our prayers. He is our advocate. He stands to welcome his faithful children home. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, right? Sam talked about that last week. Why? Because he was not a Levite. He was not of the tribe of Levi. So he wouldn't be a priest. 
And while Jesus healed people, he preached the truth, he loved people, he never entered in to the office of priest until he offered that blood to the Father in the real temple in heaven. Those that serve, the Levites, they serve a copy, a shadow. And just as Moses was warned by God when he's about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was sown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Because it was enacted on better promises. So we have in the first half, verses 1 through 6, our great high priest and his ministry for us. In the second half of this chapter, the better covenant that he ministers. Why is it better? Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them... Now hold on, what's the problem with the first covenant? Well, it wasn't perfect. Doesn't mean that it was wrong. But Paul talks about the purpose of the old covenant in the book of Galatians. And he said the Old Testament, the law, was simply a schoolmaster to bring us to God. What was the whole point of the law? From circumcision to all the parts of the law was the point that we need a Savior. No one can make it by their own works. And about the time you think I'm doing it all right, lust comes in. And Jesus pointed that out because the Pharisees are real good at dressing up the outside but he said, if you just lust after a woman, you're guilty of adultery. Because God goes past the externals and he looks at the heart. It's personal. You may have everybody else fooled in life. But you're not going to fool God. And when somebody who God loves hears the word, the word is like a sword that cuts and divides. Even the soul and spirit, joint and marrow. But the law, the old law, was built on the ability of man, wasn't it? To point out to man that you can't do it. You can't do it. But through one man, Jesus Christ. I believe it's in Romans 8. You don't have to turn there. I'll do that for you. But you can if you want. Because we like to preach with our finger on the text. Verse 3, Romans 8. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, right? Whose flesh? Ours. Mankind's. God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What is he saying? Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And the only way we have salvation is because we partake of his perfection. The perfection of his fulfilling law for us. We partake of his life. And the Bible says there in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin for us who know no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that an amazing thought? That when God looks at us as his children who've accepted Jesus Christ as the payment for, for our sin. He sees not our record. He doesn't give us a clean slate. He sees 
The perfect righteousness of Christ were dressed in his righteousness. Oh, amazing grace. Amazing grace. Verse 8, for in finding fault with them, with the people, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There's an important point here. God's covenant is with Israel. Isn't that interesting? There is no new covenant with the Gentiles. The covenant is with Israel. You say, well, how do we get in? By faith. By faith. In Romans chapter 11, another place for us to turn so you can make sure that I'm telling you the truth. I think it's so important. I can quote some of this stuff to you, but I think it's important for some of these doctrinal um, issues that you look yourself. Verse 17. Now, if some of the branches, talking about the olive branches, Israel, were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. You will say then, branches are broken off, so that I may be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Don't, do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, and otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Here's the deal. Gentiles could come to God in the old covenant too, couldn't they? God intended the nation of Israel to be a blessing to all the nations. Genesis chapter 15. And Jesus said in John, as he was ministering to Nicodemus, we know that salvation, no, the woman, the woman uh, at the well, John 4. We know that salvation is of the Jews. That's an important point for us to remember. God's not done away with his people. And that's why he said, don't become proud against the branches. Our opportunity is through Jesus Christ and the covenant that God made with Israel. Isn't that something? That's rich. He said, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. It didn't say he didn't care about them. But it was a conditional covenant. The covenant that we have is not conditional. Isn't that awesome? God's love to you is not conditioned upon your performance. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. None of us would make it. In the Old Testament, that's what he was doing. That's what the schoolmaster was. Were there true believers? Yes, there's always been a few. But for the most part, the nation failed because it was based upon, said, if you obey me, these are the blessings. They didn't obey them. They didn't obey the Lord. They didn't get the blessings. What'd they get? They got the other part, the discipline. They got the discipline. As we read in Romans chapter 8, behold, the kindness and the discipline, severity of the Lord. For this is the covenant, verse 10, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. 
I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest. Oh man, that's, that's a promise. Now, in our church, we have small groups. In all of those small groups, we have many accountability groups, don't we? And we love those accountability groups. And the best accountability group is to remind us our relationship with the Lord. It's a quote from somebody else, but somebody said recently that Francis Chan, great pastor from California, said, I don't need human accountability. If I forget my accountability to God, nothing else will help. You say, well, it's kind of strong. Does he doesn't need other people? No, that's not what he's saying. If you truly belong to Jesus Christ, his spirit bears witness with the word in your life. And when the word is spoken and when you read it, it convicts you. And you have to, in rebellion as his child, say, I don't care, I'm not going to do it. Or in rebellion, you say, yeah, but. No. And then if you rebel, then what does God do because he loves you? Hebrews 12, he spanks you. He scourges every child he receives, every single one, so that if you're without discipline, you're not his child. So when we have church discipline, when there's someone that refuses to repent, what we'll find out in the process is do they belong to the Lord? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul delivered that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And I believe in 2 Corinthians, what we find, that fellow woke up. And Paul says, okay, now take him back. The church separated in fellowship, not from believers, but a man who called himself a believer, but wouldn't separate from his sin. And all of a sudden, he got out there by himself, and he said, oh, man, life is not good without my brothers and sisters. And he came back, and Paul said, now take him back. He's repented, lest he be overcome with too much sorrow. See, if we separate and are obedient, but somebody calls himself a believer and they're taken over by greed and lust and all those things he lists there, railing, and we do what the Bible says, we put them out. If there's no discipline, or excuse me, if there's no spirit in the life, they don't belong to Jesus Christ, you won't see discipline. And they won't care. Besides their pharisaical flesh, it says, ooh, you made me look bad. But otherwise, they're not going to really care, and you won't see discipline. But if they belong to the Lord, the Bible says there will be discipline. In some cases, God, because he loves his children, takes them home. There's an internal witness. You have the life of Christ in here, and it desires to feed upon the word. See, even before you were saved, God has set his affection on you. And I think John 10 speaks to unsaved people that God has set his affection upon. They hear the word of God. They hear the gospel. That's a sheep hearing the shepherd's voice. And they go, oh, what's, what was that? I don't even like that. Well, what was that? And they can't stop. They got to come back. And eventually they come to Christ. My sheep hear my voice and what? They follow me. Same thing's true of a believer. We hear the word of God and... It might rub our flesh the wrong way, but we just say, God, give me grace that I might be obedient. So in our counseling, it's not saying truths over and over and over till Christians feel good about being obedient. 
You give them the truth, and you got to leave the you got to leave them with the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes if you're just propping people up, you might be giving false assurance to an unbeliever. Because if they if they love the Lord, they're going to want to be obedient. That's my point. I'm not saying we don't need counselors. Amen. Thank you for the counselors that we have. But all we have to offer is the Word of God. If there's something else, it's not going to help. Because of what it says here. They have that witness inside. So we don't just go around telling, hey, gonna, you know, hey, get back to church. You know, hey, do the right thing. Hey, know the Lord. Why? Because if they have a personal relationship with Christ, the witness of the Spirit is with them every day. And he is a discerner of not only their actions, but their thought life. Amen? He's there. You know that. And sometimes you don't feel closer than when he's just spanked you. I remember getting spankings. When I got a lot of them. I did. I was the oldest. I was experimenting in all evil and rebellion so I could help the rest of them not go the wrong way, right? And my dad would tell me, that's going to hurt me more than hurt you. I, I didn't get that because I wasn't a dad yet. But every time he spanked me, then he would hug me. And the Bible says in the Psalms, I comforted myself like a weaned child comforts against his mother's breast. Do you remember? I don't know about you, but I remember just getting those. <laughs> and my dad hugging me. God does that. He disciplines us because he loves us, not because he loves to punish us. But that's the nature of a personal God, not just a religion. For all will know me. And here's the, the amazing part. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What does that mean? God doesn't know about them? No, no. It means he doesn't count them against us. Oh, what a gospel. For the believer that comes in repentance to Jesus, the Old Testament says, come let us reason together though your sins be as scarred, I'll wash them whiter than wool. They'll be red like crimson, I'll wash them whiter than snow. I'll remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. And here's the thing, I remember them no more. Now, sometimes you may have a friend, maybe your spouse, because, you know, marriage is a, that, a welding that causes a lot of heat, and there's a lot of things that go on in marriage. And, and I, I remember my buddy Billy telling me, I'll tell you what, there's no more powerful tool in be, submitting to the Holy Spirit than being married. I'm like, Welcome. It's true, right? And you may have somebody that hurts, has hurt you, even somebody very close, and you have forgiven them. But then it comes back, doesn't it? And, and we tend to have that list. And sometimes we get in another probably, totally different situation, and we want to bring the list back out. Yeah, but remember you did this? Oh, I thought you forgave me. Well, I did, but it's still wait. God never does that. We're not supposed to. Sometimes we don't trust God enough for the keeping of our soul. And so we'll bring that list back up to try to, you know. But God doesn't do that. 
We come to him and you say, but he, I mean, I just did the same thing yesterday. He's going to forgive me again. Yes, over and over and over again. And he never says, I'm sorry. You've asked too many times. Mm -mm, never. He remembers it no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. When did the old covenant disappear? When Jesus died on the cross, he said it is finished. The New Testament tells us that the veil was rent from the top to the bottom. You know what people saw when it was open? Nothing. Nada. Zero. Because the glory had departed long before. There was not even the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared sometime during the Babylonian captivity. Some people say Isaiah, Jeremiah hid, hid it somewhere, and God has it kept. And God can do that, and he's going to bring it back when Jesus comes and sits on the throne. When Pompey co uh, conquered Jerusalem, he desired to see the Holy of Holies, and for some reason they let him because he was a big, bad Roman general. And when he got in there, he said, basically, what was the big deal? It was just empty. That's right. Nothing was there. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out. When the veil was rent to the top and the bottom, it showed you. They probably got some more material or soda back together. I don't know if there's a seam up there now. But there was a testimony that nothing was there. It was over. It was done. There was no power. The power is in our true high priest, Jesus Christ, who once for all put away sin forever, and he sat down. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, that you're that high priest. Oh, Lord, we don't come to you enough. We don't trust you enough with our everyday things, and yet you tell us, come unto me. Some are here, and they've listened to the gospel, and your message is to them, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my burden is easy, my yoke is light, and you will find rest unto your soul. Oh, Lord Jesus, all of us as your children, take it upon ourselves when we don't need to. Help us, give us the grace to rest in you. And Lord, for those that have never come, you know hearts, we don't. Draw them to yourself this morning. Help them to see the hopeless cause of self-works and self-reformation. Help them to come as sinners. As the old gospel song says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to your cross I cling. Use the word in our hearts to your glory, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.